Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Love, life and loss. Now the hubris of the human species would seem to suggest we stand above all others in the animal kingdom. But Amanda Newhouse shows just how vulnerable we all are in her novel, The Breeding Season. So, Amanda, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, your novel starts in a moment of desolation, really, for Elise and Dan, the two main characters. What's happened? So, at the beginning of the novel, Elise and Dan have had a stillborn son... Um, named William, and they're grieving. They've just buried him. They're coming back from their small ceremony, um, and they're basically, it's the beginning of the rest of their lives, and they both realize this, but the story begins with their setting them on their separate trajectories of healing. But they're also, you're looking at it in many ways from the male and female perspective. In his mind, they're the same the two kinds of sickness. His grief is a nausea that doesn't subside. There's no point asking her to explain it to him. They are two ends of the same leech, feeding on a wound, moving apart incrementally as they swell up with blood. Two different perspectives on the same incident. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think it's one of the most important parts of the novel from my perspective. Um, in fact, when I first started writing the novel, I went with only Elisa's perspective and, and I got about halfway through and I thought, this isn't, this isn't the whole story. And I had to bring Dan in. Um, and I had to do that in part <clears throat> because I felt that any of this kind of shared parental loss or grieving isn't just about her body. Even if the baby was part of her body in the beginning, he lost so much too. And I saw this kind of isolation of the male in kind of so-called female issues happening in my own life when I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, and my husband and I would go into the hospital and the, the midwives would speak just to me. And when I had breast cancer and we would go into appointments together and the doctors and nurses would speak just to me, when he felt that he was sharing in that anticipation and sharing in that fear and and even though it wasn't his body. But the nature of the discourse as well for men and women is different and how they talk about it. That's right. That's right. So that's a challenge in many ways to try and capture that as well. Yes. And well if I could interject with a a male perspective and a personal perspective, often men don't have or haven't been given the means of discourse in these areas, in this domain. That's right. And I wanted to give, I wanted to give Dan a voice for those, for those men who, who felt that they didn't have a voice in these situations. I mean, certainly at the beginning of the novel, Elise feels that this is her loss and she's not willing to share it with Dan. And I don't think that that's uncommon. In but the also world. not knowing how to share it. That's right. That's part of the challenge, part of the difficulty. Well, we have these two characters, Elise and Dan, then, the common experience of that loss, but their respective backgrounds of this couple add 
more depth and texture to our appreciation of the loss. So let's have a look at these characters a little. Elise is a research biologist and her speciality is a particular native Australian marsupial, the Antichinus. What can you tell us about the Antichinus? This is fascinating. Yeah, the Antichinus is a really fascinating creature. They're a mouse-sized marsupial. There are actually several different species of them. They're, they're distributed quite broadly around Australia, so they're more common than you would think. But they're a mouse-sized marsupial that invests so much energy into reproduction and breeding that their lifespan is very short. Basically, the males of the species will invest very heavily in running around and mating with as many females as they can over kind of a three-week period, after which time they degrade very quickly and die. And the females invest so much into lactation and raising these offspring that they die, most of them die soon after the um, babies are weaned. So um, I'll substitute a word in here for the next passage I'm about to <laughs> read. Um, but after the mating and birthing and lactating, most of the females die. They give everything, you see. The energy in their fat stores, the protein in their muscles, they use it all up. They starve for their babies, give everything away. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't your body? Now, this adds a particular element of poignancy to the story you're relating. Nature has counterpoised life and death here, renewal and death in many ways. Yes, absolutely. Um, and in the passage you just read, I mean, Elise is feeling like, why didn't my body do that? I was willing to do that. And my body rebelled and said no. And she wanted a, she wanted more agency she wanted to be able she wanted to be able to control her body in a way that it would produce this child that she had dreamed of but isn't this part of the hubris i mentioned at the beginning mm. that we think we're in control but uh, nature has other plans or other situations arise in absolutely and that i mean that really hit home to me when i was diagnosed with cancer i was 32 years old i was in the best health of my life i just had this beautiful baby and my body had allowed i felt this is my how i felt about it my body had allowed these cancerous cells to take hold and i didn't understand how that happened and I think it, it did, it definitely kind of washed away any of that hubris that I'd had up to that point because I knew that my body was fallible in a way that I never had before. But your own background is in biology and the research and such like. Were you in many ways uh, able to think your way through this or equipped? Or do you still hold that notion, yes, reproduction and I've got a, a life span or a timeline here for more babies and such like what do you know how do people think in this regard it's it's how we're trained to think in many ways and culturally that it's going to be ongoing that's right yeah we do um no it's it's very interesting question because i think that my work up until up until that point my research had always been separate from my own life. And it was only when my body 
kind of did this to me, I guess is a way of saying it. Only after cancer did I start to think about the ways in which I was an animal just like the rest of them and that the decisions I made, the investments I made had repercussions potentially. And it's unpredictable. Mm, absolutely. In many ways. But then this is counterpoised with what nature does. I mean, there are several other references there. Uh, fertility and um, packets of sperm, shall we say, being held uh, until the right moment, uh, etc. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, all these examples in nature. That's right. The Antichinus, I um, and their relatives. Actually, I'm so fascinated by this idea that. The females, because during the, the breeding season in these species, everyone is mating with everyone, basically. They're just the males are running around frantically just trying to find females, and the females are just basically accumulating sperm. And at some stage, they they hold the sperm in these amazing parts of their anatomy called crypts, which gives you an, a, an incredible image. And at some point, they fertilize the eggs that come down with the sperm, and no one knows about which sperm or how they select. Or how they select. But yeah. in terms of a novel, then you've got this notion of nature being a, a sort of overarching force uh, against which the individual, and then when you consider what Elise and Dan have been through, that that emotional investment. So. You've got this contrast uh, between what nature allows and what we, as people, think we can control and uh, and such like. But we we need to get on to Dan as well, a writer and artist, so to speak. He's providing a different perspective to the scientific perspective that Elise has. And he's got a task of writing his uncle's biography, Berlin Warn. And now, Berlin Warren has a, an interesting background, and Dan as well. So Dan is an artist. One of the workshops he runs is bringing in photographs of beautiful women over time. But the query in that workshop is about what? So Dan is running a writing workshop and using art as prompts to, to prompt creative writing. And what he doesn't realize and what's pointed out to him in the workshop is that every picture that he's brought in is of a woman or of a woman's body or part of a woman's body. And then the question then is, were the painters all male? Probably. Probably they were because most of the famous painters of the last few hundred years were male. So culturally, our perspective of beauty has been dominated by male visions of what beauty is. That's right. It's been shaped by the male gaze. Well, you do, and we'll talk about that a little later on as well in terms of who controls that gaze. But Berlin Warren and his muse, Hannah, we're now encroaching here in this part on uh, some rather taboo topics Berlin Warren has uh, is an artist. His images are sexual, and Hannah is. Uh, so Berlin Warren broke out into the art world with a painting of Hannah when she was only fifteen years old, and it's a painting of her genitalia. And 
the issue here is that Hannah feels that she had agency in this situation. Um, and so the question that I, I wanted to kind of work around here is, is how much agency does a young woman of 15 years old have in a situation where she's dealing and kind of establishing over time a romantic relationship with a much, much older man. But you've also described her coming of age, so to speak. The girl can be anything she wants. She is queenly, imperial, has the brightest future if she takes it in her hands, if she frees her hands up for taking it. But she loves her body, her smooth, beautiful body. Why should she have to give up anything? Why can't she have it all? Why can't she love her body and more? And so Hannah's a free spirit even at 15. And this, in many ways, starts to challenge cultural and social taboos um, and also addresses what happens at puberty and all of these sorts of things. So is it appropriate um, what she goes through? Because she does become Berlin's muse. Is it appropriate then for Berlin to, well, is it take advantage or... How do we look at it? Yeah, well, that's that's the big question, isn't it? And I don't I don't know if it's answerable, but it's certainly. I mean, there certainly are different perspectives on that within the story. So her her family obviously thought this was very not appropriate, and um, and yet she she felt agency. She felt she was in control of her body and her decisions, and she and Berlin have a very long time relationship and connection with each other so it wasn't it also wasn't a single incident so yeah it's a it's a very important question and and it has been uh in society as well um there was the artist who took photographs of her daughter that's right uh, and such like now was that beauty or was that taking advantage of a child how do we look upon this notion of beauty and what does nature say? And and these are rather challenging arguments to actually address, which is, is fascinating, which in many ways, I mean, just to finish off with Dan, he's ghostwriting. So we've got a sort of um, different uh, non-scientific view of beauty, art. He's looking at the world in a completely different way as well, as is his uncle. So it's interesting how we come at and, and see these worlds. Now, um, I'll make a brief pause here to announce that this is published or not, and I'm talking to Amanda Niehaus about the breeding season. The narrative that goes through this novel, now that uh, Elise and Dan have been through this, the loss of their child, they involve themselves in their work and in many ways, uh, well, separates not quite the right word, but Elise is doing field work, Dan is doing research. This gives them the opportunity then to explore their pasts in some ways. And that then raises the question of actually what held them together in the first place because they've, all, they've had relationships prior to meeting and this influences their lives as well. Absolutely. Um, both of them have had difficult relationships in the past that shaped their 
their current relationship and any future, just as we all have. I mean, every every relationship that we've ever had, I think, contributes to who we are and how we deal with others in our environment. <clears throat> and so for Elise, this difficult relationship was with an older man. And she certainly didn't have the feeling of agency that Hannah has in, in that relationship um, and was left quite in a difficult situation in the end. Um, and Dan experienced a great loss and that he's never quite got over with his first love. So, But then how do, how do they know they're in love? Uh, sort of a, a trite question. But then the way you describe the physicality of the relationship that Elise and Dan share and their need for each other. So whilst they're apart, they find... Uh, an expression of their sexuality, um, which they see in each other and, and a longing for each other. So it asks or begs the question then of, of what unites people if they've been through other relationships for other reasons, convenience, circumstances and such like. What holds people together? Oh, that's, that's a in huge, nature. it's a huge question, yeah. But in some ways this novel, starts to tackle yeah. some of those things because this sort of brings us to some of the imagery here. The notion of DNA. So we're now back to the scientific um, uh, microchimerism. Yes. Now, the DNA, would you care to explain? Sure. So I was, I'm fascinated by all of the ways that our bodies change over our lives, that we accumulate elements of our environment in our bodies. And so microchimerisms are basically that any any pregnancy that a woman has had, whether or not it's gone to term, there are bits of that baby's DNA within the woman's body. And so they've done studies where they've looked at uh, female brains and they've found male, like, the DNA of male offspring in the female brains. So the baby's DNA crosses into the female's body and 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 pass, and stays there. But it, that notion of the DNA is also part of sort of um, the discourse when it comes to relationships. Oh, we felt so close, so connected. I felt she was part of my DNA. Mm. So we use that term in in that sort of poetic way yeah, as we well. Yeah, we do. We do. So, but it, it's actually. There are True. actually ways that that can happen. So nature is is intriguing. But also then, I mean, you've got that notion of the DNA, but in the novel, it's the DNA of their experiences as well that lingers and informs their present life as well. That's right. So that's yeah. all, all coming through there. Um, very early on, you have Elise finding a sparrow. This is what sort of brings her out of a sort of um, melancholy in some ways. It's hit the window and died. But we get into this notion of taxidermy. Now, what, what are you trying to convey with it, that image there, do you think? I think in the book I was trying to look at bodies from all different perspectives. So live bodies and dead bodies and artistic bodies and scientific bodies. And and so for Elise, the bird almost represents 
a rebuilding because it's it's the death of of one way of life and she takes control of it and she hollows out the skin and fills it with something else and creates something new and the bird becomes a symbol of her relationship <clears throat> excuse me her relationship with Dan later on as you see so i think from her perspective the bird is about this transition into the new way of living but is there a sense of control in that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She has to take control in order to move on from this loss. Well, now let's get on to this issue of control and the male gaze, as it is called, because in some ways this is quite a controversial issue that's raised. Have you heard of the male gaze? It's a concept used to highlight the influence of men on art and film, the voyeurism, the objectification and perceived passivity of women. How men see women has shaped these fields, and I have no doubt they've shaped science too. I want to write a book about how we run the show, use behaviour and physiology to control reproduction. Females, I mean, not us specifically. Now, this in many ways goes counter to a lot of social attitudes at the moment that women have agency and so you're actually tackling and addressing this issue biologically speaking you raise the mosquito fish and things like that what's going on here with the male gaze well i think that i mean it's it's become very clear um a lot of a lot of people have been talking over the last few years about the way that kind of our male-dominated societal structures have shaped art and literature. And I think we're now beginning to to also see how those perspectives have shaped science and the way that we look at female bodies, what we know about female bodies and female agency. So I think, the, for example, the traditional idea of like all the sperm fighting it out to get to the egg and the first one to get there is the one that wins. That's not actually the way it happens. The, fe- the, the egg itself has certain proteins, has certain ways of encouraging certain sperm. So I think that there are these more, maybe more hidden ways that females are... Does, well, does this extend beyond that sort of uh, biological level to the interaction in society between people, do you think? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting. I'm very interested in sort of male and female dynamics and, and the way that – because I do believe that we inherently see the world – through different perspectives and behave differently because our bodies are so fundamentally different. Well, one of the ways you've, you've written this, so you think a man can look at a woman for her beauty and not objectify her, asks Dan. He understands and does not understand the gaze or how it works, how a man is meant to look at a woman as no more than her mind when the mind is housed in a body, when the body defines the mind's workings. This is the drama about Berlin's work, whether he should be allowed to tell a woman's story using her own body. And so this notion of what nature has done and given to operate naturally, and yet we are imposing 
social agenda on it, meant to divide off what nature does and what we think as a society. And so you're actually challenging um, a lot of sort of contemporary thinking in many ways on this. Hmm. I think that I think that there is no kind of I think a lot of contemporary discourse on this is too black and white and I think that there are a lot of there's a, a lot more nuance than is coming into the conversation and so I think that that's that's a place where long form writing like novels excels because it brings the nuance into these conversations. Well, you can allow us to look at it um, more gradually, more evenly. What you've also done, I mean, Elise is the scientific, uh, Dan is the creative. It's often seen the other way in society. Uh, Their shared experience, which pulls them apart as well as brings them together, how they uh, sort of address those, the concerns they have, the means with which they're allowed to express what they're going through. And this juxtaposition of life and death and rebirth and such like. I mean, can people in many ways help their natures? I mean, you've got uh, Berlin Warren, who's very narcissistic. Absolutely. But can he help his behaviour and attitude or not, do you think? Can people like that control it? Or is it naturally, they're naturally predisposed to it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think... Berlin, yes, I think he he is a narcissist. I I don't know that he can control his behaviors and his the way that he interacts with his world. I mean, same with Hannah, there, sexually active and aware. The interesting thing is, you've used tattoos where Hannah is concerned. She's almost become an artwork, That's an right. installation. There are also twists and turns in this novel, which we can't necessarily divulge and the reader will have to look into it for themselves and read for themselves. Unexpected uh, intervention of nature and such like perspectives of nature. And it's nature that informs a lot of the emotional um, sort of discourse that takes place between people. And is it, are we alone in that thinking, that uh, emotional repertoire that people have as opposed to wildlife or not? Oh, in in terms of the emotions, I think so. But I also think that every organism is entirely shaped by it. Not entirely. Every organism is very dramatically shaped by its environment in the way that they, they behave differently in different environments, the ways that environments influence our DNA and the way that our DNA functions in our bodies. And yet I'd say that when we read a novel, we're looking at the emotional crisis, which is what you've captured here. So we've been talking scientifically, and there's some amazing sort of insights into how the natural world works and the dichotomy there and uh, the life and death and such like. But that emotional uh, layer then of that relationship between Dan and Elise and how they take on um, the the challenge they are faced with and how they actually come to terms with the loss of, of their child. Amanda, we're going to have to finish the interview there, unfortunately. The book is entitled The Breeding Season. It's by Amanda Niehaus. Your first novel? 
It is my first novel. So hopefully there are more to come. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. So thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you.